just a little bit more than that. How y'all doing this morning? Listen, this is a, a new day the Lord has given us, and, and every day he's given us, whether it's whether it's raining or not, every single day is a, uh, is a good day for us. Lamentations 3, every single morning, his mercy is, is new. Uh, so whether it's raining or sunny, the, the thing that gives us joy is that we woke up to brand new mercy at the threshold of every morning is, is the faithfulness of our God um, that does something to me. Look, uh, Psalms chapter 98 talks about this as well, how faithfulness surrounds him. Like he's not faithful because he's, he just does some acts of faithfulness. He's faithful, he's faithful just because of who he is. And if for nothing else, that should birth uh, joy in us. I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited uh, this morning. Woke up just reflecting on uh, 36 years of um, of faithfulness uh, that the Lord has been, and not that everything has been well and everything has been perfect. Uh, but the truth is, even in imperfection, the Lord has just revealed such a, a perfect faithfulness through Jesus Christ, um, and that is what drives us this morning. Listen, welcome, guys. I know we have some new visitors today. I just want to jump right in and say welcome to you guys. If this is your first time here, uh, we are glad that you are here. We are a church plant here in the Bed-Stuy section. My name is Brandon Watts, and I get to serve here as the lead pastor of this church, this church plant uh, that we, I mean, literally launched a couple of months ago, uh, really like a month and a half ago. We are just excited to be doing what we're doing. We have been here uh, really since last June uh, just trying to trust Jesus grind as hard as we can to make Jesus known. That's the goal of our church. If you walk out of here and say, well, what is, what is the one thing that they are serious about? It's Jesus Christ. Uh, we believe that he forms and informs every sector of our life, uh, and that's including our church. And so we're glad uh, that you guys, uh, you first-time visitors, we're glad that you made it here. Listen, we have ended Colossians, the book of Colossians, Right there, it should have been a little, oh, so let's, let's try that again. We've ended the book of Colossians. I know, right? That's what I'm saying. We've ended the book of Colossians, and uh, it's a book that we've been going through for the last seven months. Uh, seven months straight, we've been walking through verse by verse, line by line, as the scriptures say, uh, precept upon precept. We believe in, uh, as it's called, expositional preaching, preaching through uh, what the author originally intended uh, when he wrote that letter to Colossians, what did he want them to hear? And so we believe that that uh, impacts what we do here as well. Uh, so we're excited to be finishing up Colossians and jumping into a new series. We are going through a two-month series now called The Bride of Christ. If anybody's ever heard this term, The Bride of Christ, uh, it, it refers to uh, the church and Jesus, the, the church, how the church is Jesus' bride and Many of us in here may have questions, and, and I don't know if you guys are writing these questions down. I haven't seen many questions, but uh, if you have questions throughout these, these, uh, these two months, and even if you hear, you know, hear something within the sermon, you're like, well, let me ask about that. Uh, the best way to filter that is through writing that down and giving that to the hospitality team. That'll help us to be able to know and make sure that we're hitting on the right areas. Literally going to be talking about how the church is wired and church government and church finances and uh, just all aspects of what the church is. But there's really two, when we say the church and we talk about the bride of Christ, there's really two aspects that I want to talk about, not just today, but in general overall. The first is the universal church, all right? And the second is the local church. Universal church is 
every single believer, anybody that has professed faith in Jesus, anybody that has trusted Jesus, you were not saved individualistically to be a lone ranger. But you're saved to be baptized into a body of believers. And so somebody across the country, someone across the world that has trusted Jesus is a part of the church, is a part of the same body that we're a part of. Acts chapter 8, verse number 3, don't turn there, talks about how Saul went around from house to house. And then it says ravaging the church. Now get this, that he's going house to house. They're not in a, a specific location. He's going house to house, but they were considered the church. It says that they were, he was ravaging the church, and so that's the universal church. So we'll talk about that, but then there's the local church. That's what we are here. That's what we, we're planted here. Uh, that's what we see. I mean, this is the borough of churches. So you see a church on every corner here. That's what local church is, and so that's a group of believers that meet at a particular time, a particular place, but also do things in the community. So we're going to, as we talk about church, I want to make sure I'm clear on defining universal church versus local church, uh, and you'll hear both aspects today. Uh, so if you could turn with me to Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16. Y'all promise y'all going to wake up just a little bit this morning? All right, Matthew 16. I'm uh, eager to, to, to preach this, uh, this passage. I think it's a, a great beginning to, to this series. All right, Matthew 16. I'll read, I'll pray, um, and then I'll read, I'll announce the topic, and then pray, and then we'll jump, we'll jump in. All right, Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm reading from ESV, by the way. And they said, some say, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I will tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want to preach from the topic entitled, Jesus the Builder of the Church. Jesus the Builder of the Church. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess our desperate need for your Holy Spirit's working. Uh, literally cannot preach without him. Uh, literally cannot hear without him. We need your Spirit to, uh, to move and even hover over us uh, like you did when you hovered over the water. Spirit, be in control. You have full access and full reign. Uh, and, and Father, I pray that you would help me even to be faithful to the text. Grant me physical strength as we dive into what it is that uh, you will say to us today. We pray that you would be glorified. Psalms 115.1, not unto us, not unto us, but unto you get the glory. And this morning, that is what we seek. We don't seek our own glory. We don't seek our own fame, but we seek uh, the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. Uh, the hero of the book, the hero of our lives. So be with us this morning. Use it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus, the builder of the church. I think this is an, an appropriate uh, topic to start with. As we talk about the bride of Christ and we talk about the church, it's impossible to start with anything else besides who built the church and who sustains the church. I mean, you can, you can start at other places. You can start on church government. Uh, you can start on church finances. Uh, and run past Jesus. If you do not understand Jesus as the builder of the church, 
we will not understand not just this text, but we won't understand any of the series. If we don't understand any of the series, we won't understand any of the Bible because Jesus is a central piece of uh, what, it is, what it means to be in the church, universal and, and in local. Let me just tell you what the church is not. The church is not built on who has the, the best music. That, I mean, that's good. We want, you know, good music. We, church is not built on who has the best programs, who has the best child care. If you provide child care, then your church is, like, that's not what the church is built on. Literally, I, I know a guy that lives in the neighborhood that, yeah, man, you're, you're planted in that area. I know a church there that, I mean, they have the best fried chicken. Like, that's, the, I don't want to hear about the best fried chicken. I want to know who's preaching the best Jesus, who's singing about the best Jesus. That is what the church so when we talk about what the church is built on, what it will birth in us is a sense of the unstoppable nature of the church. Literally, the church is unstoppable. Now, I don't want to run past the fact that maybe you're in here and you have, you have issues with the church. Maybe you're in here and uh, you've had church hurt. And you, when I say the church is unstoppable for you, you're like, well, the church seems pretty stoppable. I mean, look at the dwindling numbers across the country with the church. Look at the, the weird experiences that I've had with the church. Look at the, the, uh, the reasons why, the consumeristic reasons why people come into a church and why people leave a church, because it's not about me, right? It's not catering to my, my person, my being, like it's not catering to me. And so for that reason, I'm, I'm going to leave. Or it is catering to me, so I'm going to come. It's not what the church is about. It's not what the church is supposed to be built on. It's, it's, it's almost like, if, you know, if you read the Bible of what the scriptures talk about when it relate, as it relates to the church, and you see that it's built on Jesus, and you walk into a church, and you see something opposite, it's so confusing. And that is many of our experiences. I've talked to many of you, and many of you have shared that with me. And that is uh, an unfortunate uh, mishap, and we have to be, the church has to be the church. We can't be a rotary club. We can't be something else. We can't just be a, a cool place to gather, uh, but we have to be, we have to know what it means to be the church. It's almost like if you go to a Nets game, if I went to, to a Nets game, I went down to the Barclays Center on Atlantic and uh, Flatbush, and I get into the, to the arena, you know, it, it seats 18,000 people. Get into the arena, and everyone has on their Nets paraphernalia, and everyone's excited. It's packed out. It's normally not packed out, but it's packed out, and everyone's excited about the game. And then the team comes out, the Nets come out, and then the opponent, the opposite team comes out, and they get in the middle of the court, and then you're excited because you're like, man, I'm at a basketball game. And they take off their shoes and socks and sit down and start toe wrestling. And then you look around like, don't, I mean, that's a, that's a legit sport. I don't know if you guys know that. I mean, you can, in England, they, I don't know how I know this. But in England, you, you literally can, like, be a toe-wrestling champion. Anyway, but the, the, these two opposite teams sit down in the middle court and start toe-wrestling, and the crowd's going crazy. And you ask somebody next to you, what is this? Is, like, is this basketball? And they're like, yeah, this is basketball. They think it's basketball, but you're, in, you're sitting there like, this is, this is not basketball. This is toe-wrestling. In many of our experiences with church, that is what it's like. We read the Bible we walk into a church and we're like, I'm confused. We're supposed to be playing ball, but we're toe wrestling. And so my prayer and hope is that through the next two months that we really just lay out, let's forget your church experience because that's what we'll do. We'll bring our church experience, our baggage into my experience of the church is how.
I view the church. My hope and prayer is that we will we'll walk away from this, this two-month series uh, ending in at the end of July, at the end of June. Ending at the end of June, we'll walk away saying, I think I understand the church a little bit more. That's my hope and my prayer. So let's check on, uh, at the door. Let's check our experience and walk in and just say, what does the Bible say about it? Let's just walk through what that says. And so we'll do that today. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, let's stop there because the dialogue that Jesus is about to have with the disciples, particularly Peter, the dialogue that he's about to have is 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 won't be understood unless we understand where they are. Literally, what they said is important, but where they said it is just as important. Where Jesus claimed stake of this is my church, this is where I'm building my church, where Jesus said it is just as important as what he said. He's at the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is located on the North Sea of Galilee, literally known for its religious diversity. That's what Caesarea was Philippi, Caesarea Philippi was known for. It was known for its cultic Baal worship and the worship of another god named Pan. That's what it was known for. And so when Jesus is making this claim, when Peter makes this claim, it's important because he's making it in the midst of a bunch of different false gods. Why is that important for us? Because we live in a borough that is extremely diverse, religi- uh, uh, religiously diverse. That's what that's the borough that we live in. You can go around the corner and there's a there's a kingdom hall right around the corner. You can go down the street up Nostrand. There's a uh, uh, I don't even know what you call it. It's a spiritual Christian worship center where they just invite all different religions to come in and they preach from like five different authoritative books. It's like Jesus is making a claim here when he says I'm building my church. That means all other churches is 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 don't even pale in comparison to the church. That's what he's claiming here. And over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New, you will see over and over again where Jesus, and you'll see how God the Father flexes his muscles against other gods. Over and over again, look at places like 1 Kings 18, where it talks about how Elijah, the prophet Elijah, one prophet goes against 450 prophets of Baal. And they both, they, They build an altar, and Elijah says, you get a bull, I'm going to get a bull. Let's lay it on the altar and call down fire. Whoever, whoever God calls down fire and makes this altar just light up with fire, whoever's God does that, that's the one true God. And so the 450 prophets of Baal, the Bible says that all night and all morning they were praying. They're literally running around cutting themselves. And Elijah is taunting them. I, I love that verse, by the way. It talks about how Elijah is saying, uh, maybe your God is asleep. Or maybe he's at the bathroom. That's what the scripture literally says. Maybe your God is at the bathroom. I love that because it always, it always a little sarcasm is okay. You know, because Elijah is able to do it. But we'll see over and over again. So these guys are cutting themselves. They're, they're calling out to their God, no fire. So now it's Elijah's time. The dope thing is Elijah didn't just call down fire. He says, get a bucket of water and put it on the altar. Drench the altar with water. They do it. He says, do it again. Do it a second time. They do it a second time. He says, do it a third time. The altar is dripping. And then he calls down fire and God lights a fire. All of the, all of the people that were spectators fall to their face and worship God and say, he's the one true God. God always flexed his muscles in the midst of false gods. And so when he 
when he makes this claim of building his church in the district of Caesarea Philippi, once again, he's flexing his muscles. Once again, he's doing that. And so he's going to show us here. He's, he's going he's to roll through some questions, two questions Jesus asked, and both of them are important for, for us. It says he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Let me just point out this one obvious fact. Whenever Jesus asks a question, it's always rhetorical. He's never asking. He's not asking this question like he doesn't know the answer. Jesus is not like he's not trying to figure. He's not he's not having an identity crisis here. He's not saying, man, I don't know who I am. So let me ask around and try to figure out who I am. Who, who do people say I am and whoever that is? And I'm going to build my life off of that. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Whenever the Bible, whenever God is asking a question, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Whenever you see God asking a question, it's never for his benefit. It's always for yours. It's always for yours. He's never confused. It's like in, 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 in Genesis when he asked Abraham, he says, is there anything too hard for me? Do you think he really needed the answer from Abraham? What is hard for me? No, he wanted Abraham to know there's nothing too hard. There's nothing too hard. And so Jesus walks in here securing who he is. He's not confused. He's not having an identity crisis. You know how I know that? In the question, he already stated who he was. Look at what it says. Who do people say that the son of man is? Son of man is a messianic title. According to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. When you hear son of man, he's talking about I'm the Christ. So before he even gets the answer, he's already claimed who he was by saying I'm the son of man. And so he asked him, who do people say I am? Rhetorical question. This is the disciples. I'm about to teach you something based on this question. Let's keep going. It says, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say. Let's just stop there for a second. Whenever you get an answer, if you ask somebody a question and you get an answer and they start with some say, you know that's going to be a shaky answer. Don't put too much stake in anybody that says, well, some say. It's probably not a legit answer. So don't ever bank that. Don't ever bank that on. Don't ever bank the counsel of somebody else when they say some say. And so they, he's, about to, he's about to show us that apparently those who were asking around and talking about Jesus, apparently they believed in reincarnation. Because every name that they named is somebody that already died. So they believe that people were, that Jesus was a reincarnate Elijah or a reincarnate prophet. Look at what it says. It says, and they said, some say John the Baptist. That's, that's, that's interesting to me. The reason that's interesting is because even John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ. Like he said those words. He didn't like play around with it. I am not. They, they started to think he was. He says, I'm not the Christ. In fact, John chapter one, he looks, he sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His sandals, I'm not even worthy to untie. Yet people are saying Jesus is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is clear. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not that. That's not me. I'm before him. I'm preparing the way for him. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with, with fire. And so he was clear. I'm not John the Baptist, but they thought that he was John the Baptist. And then it says, others say Elijah, or others say Jeremiah. That's, that's, let me tell you why that one's important. Because think about this. Elijah and Jeremiah, clearly, every, not just them, but every single prophet prophesied about Jesus. 
They all pointed to Jesus. Remember in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he sees the two disciples there. And the Bible says that he opens, he begins with Moses and all of the prophets and all of the scriptures. He interprets to them about the things concerning himself. That means every prophet, Jesus showed two disciples, every prophet to talk about me. So no, I'm not a reincarnate prophet. I, I am the one. I'm the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one that you have been waiting for, I'm here. That's what Jesus is saying. But here's something that I, I, I do want to point out. It does say, or one of the prophets. Now, let me tell you why that's not a lie. Because, of course, he's not Jeremiah. He's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist. But we have to agree that he is one of the prophets. That's his title. He's prophet, priest, and king. The problem is he's not merely a prophet. If, we, if that's what Jehovah's Witness say, if we just chalk him up to be merely a prophet, then he's, if he's not God, then our security as it relates to salvation is no longer. Because a prophet can't die on your behalf. You needed God. Only God can appease God. So he had to be 100% God and 100% man. Because only God can appease God and only he had to be a man because men are the ones that, are the ones that needed Saving. So they were partially right. They said one of the prophets. That's, that's partially right. 2008, uh, my family and I went to see uh, then-Senator Barack Obama. We went to a rally that he was at, and um, I knew a lot of men. I loved him, man. Knew a lot about him. Knew he, had, knew he had a wife. He was married to Michelle, and he had two daughters, Malia and Sasha, and, and he grad, graduated from Harvard, and we knew, you know, certain aspects about him. I got to shake his hand and say, I'm praying for you. He Gave my oldest son a high five, rubbed my, literally got a picture of him rubbing my youngest son's head. My wife got to ask a question in front of the crowd. And so I know some stuff about the president. But the truth is, years later, if I walk to the president right now, he don't know me. He doesn't know me, but I know some stuff. I know partial stuff about him. My fear as it relates to Jesus is that you know Jesus how I know the president that you know partial stuff about him. You kind of know him, but you know facts about him, right? You know facts, you know facts. You can quote the gospel, but do you, do you actually know, love, and have deep affections for Jesus? And so the prophets were partially right. Like I was partially knew the president. The, the prophets partially, the, the ones that were, some say, partially knew that Jesus was a prophet, but he was, not merely a prophet. He definitely was more. Now, Simon's response, look, look at what happens. It says, it says in verse number 15, and he said to them, well, who does men say that I am? Look at verse 16. Look who replies. Simon Peter replies. Let me just tell you, anytime in the Bible, wherever, especially, of course, especially, but the New Testament, anytime you see a question asked, anything thrown out there to the apostles, Peter's always the first one to jump up. He's, I mean, and he is, he's enthusiastic, he's strong-willed, he's, he's brash, he can be rude. He's the dude that will preach a sermon and 3,000 people be added to the church in Luke, in Acts chapter number two, but he's also the dude that'll cut your ear off. Like, do you don't, like, he's the dude that, I mean, you, you ever go to, like, you ever go somewhere with somebody and you're like, ah, oh, man, like, this person, like, he always is waiting for something to pop off. Like, he's that dude. Like, that was, that was Peter. That was Peter. He was always the first one to jump up. One time I was in, um, 
at work in Philadelphia when I was doing my residency for church planting at Epiphany Fellowship in Philly. And I'm in the office and I'm working and I started smelling weed. I'm like, why do I smell weed in the church office? Somebody smoking weed in the church? And I realized, so my office was literally right by where the play, two floors up, but right by where the playground is, playground that the church built. And so I'm like, man, I think somebody's smoking weed. Now, this is North Philly. So I'm like, man, so it's normal. So I'm like, man, somebody's smoking weed on the playground. So another guy comes in. He's like, man, we should go check that out. So I'm like, all right, let's go do that. So we walk downstairs, and we go to the playground, and nobody's on the playground. So this dude I'm with, he's a little bold. Like, he's bolder than me. Dude I'm with is like, man, they're probably around the back. Let's go around the back. Now, in my mind, in my mind, I'm like, we're in North Philly. Dudes are smoking weed, and you want to go find them? So I'm like, all right. So we get around the back, and sure enough, I mean, not off on, in the cut, literally in the back on the steps of the church, smoking weed. I mean, dudes with fitteds on, hoodies. So in that moment, I'm just telling you right now, me, I'm like, all right, it's only weed. Like... <laughs> Just let them alone. Don't mess with them. That's what I'm thinking. But this dude I'm with, I'm just being honest. This dude I'm with, he's like, yo, we got to go talk to them. So I'm like, Lord, is this how we going to die? Like right here? Like these dudes going to shoot us. So the dude walks up. He's like, and, and I'm thinking like he's going to talk like nicely to him. He's like, yo, didn't I tell y'all don't be smoking weed? Back? I'm like, this is it. This is that moment. See, that's Peter. That's Peter. Peter is the dude that in the midst of dude smoking weed in the back, he will roll right up on you. That's what Peter is. And so I'm not surprised that Peter is the one that responds. I'm not surprised at all. Who's the one that jumped in the water when they saw Jesus walking on the water? It's Peter. When they said the disciples in the upper room are drunk in Acts chapter 2, who's the one that stands up and starts to preach from Joel chapter 2? It's Peter. And so Peter is not... He's in no way is he a spiritual punk. Peter is the dude that was he loved Jesus and he was the one that would respond. And so I'm not surprised. It says Simon Peter replied. But more than Simon Peter replying, his response is what's important for us today. Look at his response. It says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is so good. Let me tell you why this is so good. Him saying you are the Christ, he's saying, I need, I need not to look any further. The Christ that has been long awaited, the Christ that all of Israel was looking for, the one that has fulfilled the Old Testament, Peter just said, you're him. You're that. You're not just a good leader. You're not just a good teacher, which he was. He was a good leader. He was a good teacher. He was a on-point prophet. But he, Peter is like, you're not just that. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've all been looking for. By him saying that, what he is doing is denouncing. Remember, he's in the Caesarea Philippi. So what he's doing when he says that to them is denouncing that anybody else is God. Zeus would have had a temple built in Caesarea. He's saying he's not God. Baal would have been, I mean, crazy worship of Baal. He's saying he's not God. And so Peter making this statement is a bold statement. See, that's why this this is why faithfully here on a consistent basis, we preach Christ because he's like we need epiphany. Listen to me. We know we don't need to look any further for another Messiah. It's not that I can't preach anything else. It's I haven't found a better alternative than Christ. 
Like no one has ever, was, no one was born like him. No one talked like him. No one lived like him. No one died like him. No one rose like him. And here's the truth of the matter. Nobody is coming back for us like Jesus. I don't need to go anywhere else. I'm secure right here in Christ. Secure right here in Christ. And so Peter makes this statement. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I love this because Peter here pulls on the deity of Christ. Remember I said he's 100% God and 100% man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. It's a term called the hypostatic union. He's 100% and 100%. And we need him to be that or else your salvation is not secure. But it is secure because he is that. Because he is that. Let's keep going. Look at verse number 17. So Peter makes this statement. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. What I love about the text is, it, is that it doesn't just define for us who Christ is, but it also shows us how you come to that conclusion. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You cannot come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah without the Holy Spirit operation in your life. You need the Father to open your eyes. Like, I don't care how crystal clear the gospel was preached. If the Holy Spirit isn't actively involved, if the Father isn't opening blind eyes, if he's not making a dead heart alive. Like, do you know there's a scripture in, in 1 Corinthians that says that the gospel is either the aroma of life or it's the stench of death? Like the same gospel. The same gospel, some people can hear it and say, I got it. I worship Jesus. And others can hear it and be like, I denounce that. And so you cannot come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, the Messiah, on your own. Look at what Jesus says. Flesh and blood don't reveal that to you. Note the comparison that he makes, that Jesus makes between Simon Peter's natural father and his heavenly father. Look at what it says. It says, Jesus calls him. He says, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of. Jonah is Simon's, is Peter's father. So he's saying, your father didn't pass that down to you. That it, you can't get this because somebody's told you and you academically said, I, I agree with it. No, no, no. He compares your father's teaching with the, with the heavenly father's teaching. And so the only way we can come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God, is by the help of the, of, of the Holy Spirit. God has to breathe in that thing. If he doesn't breathe in it, then we still will be lost. No rabbi could teach him this. His mama couldn't teach him. Do you know how many people hold on to truth because somebody else taught them it? Do you know how many? Let me take it a step further. Since we're talking about the church, do you know how many churches are built their, their entire theology is built on passed down tradition to, to, to tradition. There's no scripture, but my pastor taught me that. Anything that I say in here, you better go home and be like, well, let me make sure that's not flesh and blood. Because here, here's the truth. I could be flesh and blood. I could, I could read the text, close my Bible, and then jump into something else. And you know how many people are like, you know what? I'll accept that. You know how many churches build off of that? Off of, let me stir your emotions and get you wheeled up and you'll be faithful to the church. No, 
what does the scripture say? Flesh and blood. That's flesh and blood religion. And Epiphany, we cannot be a flesh and blood church. We must be a church that builds our entire theology, our, our entire doctrine, our entire core value off of the centrality of Jesus Christ. Let me also say, as it talks about flesh and blood, not revealing it, that also means your own flesh and blood can't reveal this to you. Let me explain what that means. That means your good character and your bubbly attitude cannot make you think that's the son of the living God. Me going to church a certain amount of time cannot make you understand the gospel and understand who Jesus is. What we need is it to be revealed to us from God the Father. And so I love that the text doesn't just define who Jesus is. It also tells you how you come to the knowledge and the conclusion of Jesus is by God the Father. Jonathan Edwards is quoted as saying, as it relates to salvation, right, because we, that's what we bank it on. It's academic work. I heard the gospel, I can quote it, and so therefore, I'm good. Jonathan Edwards is quoted as saying, to take on yourself the work of redemption is a greater task than if you had taken it upon yourself to create the whole world. In other words, it's easier to create the whole world than to try to save yourself. Flesh and blood doesn't reveal it. Flesh and blood doesn't reveal it. Now, look at what Jesus says here in verse number 18. This is really where I want to push us today as it relates to Jesus as the builder of the church. Look at the claim that Jesus makes. Verse 18, and I will tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. On this rock, I will build my church. Do you know how many churches have taken this one verse and built their whole theology? The Catholic church has built it. The validity of the Pope is based on this verse. It's based on this verse that the rock that he's talking about is Peter. The entire, I mean, anytime you build your entire theology on a verse that starts with and, you're in trouble. Never start your thoughts, your theological thoughts on a verse that starts in and. Because there's always something that comes before the and. In this case, what came before the and was Peter's confession. And so there's a grammar rule. There's something that, that I really want to get at because if we don't understand when Jesus says this rock, if we don't understand what this rock is, we can walk out of here confused. There's a grammar rule that says that the nearest pronoun, that the pronoun has to go back to the nearest antecedent. I was paying attention in second grade. It has to go back to the nearest antecedent. So if there's a pronoun, it has to go back. It has to find in the context the closest noun. Now, if that is the case, we have a problem. Because look at what the text says. It says, and I would tell you, Peter, on this, this is the pronoun. Who is the this that Jesus is talking about? The closest noun we have is Peter. And so the question on the table is, in what sense does Jesus build his church off of Peter? Is it built on Peter himself, or is it built on what just came out of Peter's mouth? It's not built on Peter. See, that's what the Catholic Church says, that the church is built on Peter. It can't, let me tell you why it can't be built on Peter. Because Peter was a sinful man. Like, he, did, he denied Jesus three times. He got told you in Galatians, he got shady with the, with the Gentiles when the Jews came. The church ain't built on that. The church is built on what Peter proclaimed, what he professed. Let me, let me show you this a little clearer. I got I to gotta back this up because anytime, see, that's what they teach you in Bible college. I mean, Bible interpretation 101. 
Scripture interprets Scripture. You don't interpret Scripture. You go find another Scripture that backs up that Scripture. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. I'll build my church is what Jesus is talking about. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 19. So this, is, this messed me up this week when I was thinking about this. Because I was thinking, man, how is, how is this church built on Peter? Like, if it's, like where do people get that from? Then I, I saw this and, and it blew me away. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer stranger and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, the household of God. Look at what it's built on. Built on the foundation of the apostles. In other words, Peter was just put into a category. So it's not just Peter. Paul just says that the church is built on the apostles. Now, that's confusing. So is that, is that, does that mean that the church is built on the apostles and Peter as people? Look at what else it says. It, it, it broadens it for us. And the prophets. So now I'm built on the apostles and I'm built on the prophets as people? No, it's going to define it for us. Look at the rest of the verse. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now we see what the church is built on. So in other words, it's built on not Peter. It's not built on the prophets. It's not built on the apostles as people. It's built on what they proclaim. I just told you all of the prophets pointed to Jesus. All of the apostles preached about Jesus. What did Paul say? Him re-proclaim. I don't proclaim myself. And so all of it's built on Jesus. Look at verse number 21 in Ephesians. Chapter 2, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It just said that Jesus being the cornerstone, the entire church is built on him. He is the whole foundation. And so when we talk about the church is built on Peter, it's built on, you can go back to, back to Matthew chapter 16. It's built on what they proclaimed. It's built on what these men proclaimed and what they preached and what they gave their lives for. Like, that's how you know Christianity is, 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 is not no false religion. Like, these men gave their life for this. They didn't, it wasn't like we're gathered in here and get to preach and then go out. No, no, no. They didn't sing happy birthday to Peter and bring a can. That's not what they did. Where's Gabe at? He's not in here. That's not, what the, that's not what the apostles did. That's not what the early church was. They were, I mean, in house after house after house proclaiming the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the builder of the church. Notice he says, I will build my church. I say this all the time. He doesn't give us credit for building anything. We're planting the church here, but I'm not building the church. He's not building my church. I'm not building his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Thank you for putting a plan together. Thank you for vision. Thank you for raising money. Thank you for picking a location. Thank you for all of that. But at the end of the day, is Jesus' church. He's in charge. He's the senior pastor. Jesus Christ, him, he's the chief cornerstone. And so when we talk about building his church, we're talking about he's building it based on the profession of what, of what Peter just said. Let's keep going, though. Verse, uh, the rest of it. And I will tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember I told y'all that the church is unstoppable. 
Here's how you know it's unstoppable. Because Jesus just said that even the gates of hell can't prevail against it. If the gates of hell can't prevail against it, it's no way we're going to prevail against it. It's no way that the community is going to prevail against the church. It's no way, here it is, it's no way that anybody that's elected into the presidential office is going to overthrow the church. I don't get nervous at who's, who's getting elected. Oh, gosh, like the campaign is, no, no, no. At the end of the day, the church, you know how the church has always thrived under bad leadership? The church has always thrived under that. And so as we start our series on the church, as we start our series on building the church, we must start our series purely looking at Jesus as the builder. We won't understand it any other way. If you're in here and you're not a part of the church, you're not a part of the universal church, all of the professing believers, I pray today that you wouldn't walk through this series, you wouldn't walk through trying to understand the church without first giving your life to Jesus and being a part of the church. How do we become part of the church? How do we become part of God's family? We become part of God's family purely based on understanding, hearing the gospel, and responding to it. Giving our life to Jesus. Do you know that the gospel says that he literally traded places with you? He took your sin and gave you his righteousness. He swapped places with you. My wife has me watching this show called, and I'm finishing it up here. She has me watching this show called Underground. Y'all been watching that? It's a great show. But she has me watching this show called Underground. And in this show, it's about these, these, uh, these slaves that are trying to find freedom. And so they're like on these paths and on these trails. They're hiding. They're just trying to find out where they can find freedom at. And it's, I mean, some of it is kids, too. So it's kids and these adults, and they're trying to find. And, and it's this one scene that I saw where a father and his son were in a field together. I don't know if it was a father and son or a family member, but either way, it was an adult, an adult male, a male adult, and it was a kid. And they were both in the cotton field, and they were both picking. And they, you had to, your cotton at the end of the day had to, it had to weigh a certain amount or else you'd get a certain amount of lashes. And so they were standing in line. Of course, the kid, it was his first day out. His fingers were pricked, and he didn't pick enough cotton. And, and so there's an older man behind a younger guy. The younger guy is about to step up and give his bag of cotton so that they could weigh it. And literally, the older guy swaps bags with him. He gives the kid his bag and takes the kid's bag, knowing the kid's bag didn't weigh enough. And so the kid weighs the bag and walks on free. And the older man takes the bag and weighs it and is beat. That is what the gospel is. That you and your sin walks up to Jesus, walks up to God the Father, and I will now be deemed and credited as perfect, righteous, and holy, and he will be credited as a sinner. Like, how does a sinless person be credited as a sinner? Because he took your sin. Willingly took it. And then the scriptures in the Old Testament tells us that it pleased the father to crush the son. Why did it please him? Because it, it gave us now a right relationship with God. That is what the gospel is. And so if you have not trusted that, I pray that you would do that today. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are, we're rocked by your church. The fact that you would die for, for, for us to be brought into your family is amazing to us. Father, we pray that that wouldn't be common to us, that that wouldn't be normal, that would be everyday language, but that would be, I mean, we would not lose our awe of the gospel. Father, your entire church is built on this message. What we proclaim week after week after week after week after week 
is based on this message. If we don't have this message, we literally have nothing to preach. I have nothing. I have nothing to say if I'm not proclaiming Jesus. Like if I don't proclaim him, let's just do something else, Lord. But the church is built off of him. And so because it's built off of him, because he's the builder and the sustainer and the life giver of church. Father, I pray that we would be consistent in proclaiming him. Forgive us for our selfish. And I'm including myself in that. Forgive us for our selfish understanding of the church. How does the church serve me? How can I benefit from the church? If we're honest, many of us in this room, we want to see people, especially if we're believers, we want to see people come to know Jesus, but we don't want to have any parts of making that happen. We want to see the church thrive, but we don't want any parts of making that happen. Some of us in this room have giftings to be able to help the church to thrive, but yet we take those giftings to corporate America and use them. And we take them to our jobs and use them. Forgive us for not plugging that into the church. Father, this thing ain't about me. It's not about us. But it's about the chief cornerstone, the one that gave his life for the church. None of us in this room gave our life for it. So we proclaim him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.